You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know why you listen to this program? Because you get to hear about great people. So you can go to your family table during the holidays and say like, well, yeah, I don't know about Joe Biden, but I think Garrett Hobart was a great vice president. You know, as we reach the holiday season, I thought I'd take some time and address some of the questions that come to me, either through listeners of the cast or through Quora, which is a website where I participate on Quora.com slash Bruce Carlson. On some TV shows, it seems like the vice president in America has limited access to the president. Is this true in real life? You know, there's a crazy thing going on right now because we just came off 2014 midterms. Obviously, there's a lot of talk about 2016, but there's one name you don't hear. That's the Vice President of the United States, Joe Biden. That's the situation that occurred in 2006, certainly, with Vice President Dick Cheney, who had sworn off. But it is not the norm. Walter Mondale, VP under Carter, became the party's nominee in 1984. George H.W. Bush became the nominee after Ronald Reagan. Al Gore was the consensus nominee in 2000. I mean, there was a small challenge from Bill Bradley. It really went nowhere. It differs with every administration. But the totality of the experience of vice presidents is that their experience has been getting better all the time. In the late 20th and the early 21st century, All of the occupants of the vice presidency have been in much better position than they had ever been. Hannibal Hamlin was not a significant figure in Lincoln's administration. He did claim, though, that Lincoln showed him the proclamation, the Emancipation Proclamation, before he issued it. But outside of that, and we really only have Hamlin's memoirs to know if that was even true, Lincoln didn't consult with him much. Hamlin only did one term. He spent his last few months of his vice presidency in the army, not in combat. Well, at least that was noble. Richard Mentor Johnson, vice president under Martin Van Buren, chosen for his hero appeal and to keep hold onto the state of Kentucky for the Democrats, took nine months off from his vice presidency, left Washington, and went back to Kentucky to work on setting up a tavern. Now, 19th century vice presidents do get a tiny bit of a bad rap here because some of them had a little influence. Grant's first vice president, Shiler Colfax, had been the Speaker of the House. He was an influential person generally in Republican Party politics. So even in the vice presidency, he couldn't be completely ignored. He's in a lot of meetings. He's often speaking for the administration. He's, he doesn't always have Grant's ear, but he is a person that is going to make his opinion known to Grant. 
Now, unfortunately, he got involved in a number of financial scandals and embarrassed the administration. They had to drop him from the ticket in 1872. Garrett Hobart, a politician from New Jersey who was William McKinley's first vice president, was another vice president that was very influential. So, again, we're not talking about open the door anytime you want and see the president. And he wasn't in any cabinet meetings. But he did play an important advisory role for the president. And like a lot of 19th century presidents did and early 20th century vice presidents did, they were... On the legislative side of things, the vice president of the Senate there, Hobart played a, a role in not just acting as president of the Senate on his own, or just sort of allowing the members to do what they wanted, presiding over it, but bringing influence of the administration to bear, making the Senate know what the administration wanted. They joke that Hobart was the assistant president in the Senate. So, you know, 19th century vice presidents do get a, a bad rap. On the other hand, when they're compared to the 20th century, they were nothing. It gets better after World War II, especially because you have Truman, who knows nothing about the runnings of the government. All of a sudden, he's catapulted into the presidency and finds out we've been developing an atomic bomb, a technology no one even knew about. And he has to be the one as an executive to decide whether to use it or not. Oh, no. When he gets elected on his own in 1948, he runs with Albin Barkley, who was a senator from Kentucky. He makes sure that Albin Barkley gets all the access he needs, puts him in meetings with Congress, and in meetings of the National Security Council. Eisenhower feels the same way about his VP Nixon. Eisenhower is aware of his age, aware of his medical condition. Nixon leads cabinet meetings when Eisenhower has a heart attack. You know, Barkley and Nixon are going to help the perception of Veeps. In fact, Barkley is the one who comes up with that term, Veep. That's what his grandkid called him. Other significant VPs, I'd say Walter Mondale under Carter. He had an important advisory role. And Al Gore. These were go-to advisors for the presidents they served. Now, there's a reason for this. Carter and Clinton are governors. They never served in Washington. And so Mondale and then Gore are important lobbyists and temperature takers in dealing with the Congress, particularly the Senate, where Gore and Mondale still had many friends. But you know, Dick Cheney is probably the most powerful vice president that you could think of, even though I suspect his influence was a bit overstated by some of the stories. And he was stronger in terms of influence in the first term of George W. Bush than in the second. It's not completely off. Uh, as a veteran of politics, Cheney was chief of staff for Gerald Ford. He had an influence other over other members of the George W. Bush administration, an advisor. It was a kind of mysterious power in a way because it's like they didn't know what he was saying to the president in the private meetings that they would have. But then in the public meetings, the cabinet meetings or security meetings, meetings about the Iraq war, he didn't say much. He would keep quiet. So some of the jokes in the Saturday Night Live was all about, you know, Cheney's influencing George W. Bush. And I suspect actually it's more that Cheney's greatest power came from influencing other members of the administration and influencing what kind of information got to the president because of their respect for him. 
as more has come out after the presidency, there's been reports, you know, the two really, they didn't hang out together. Cheney wasn't in the residence. He never went to Camp David with the family. It was all business. The head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said, he laughed a bit when asked about this question because he said, George W. Bush was definitely the alpha male in the administration. <laughs> so he laughed at any suggestion that he was under the spell of Cheney or something like that. So we could read it too much, but still, in terms of modern vice presidents, it's true to say that Cheney was one of the most powerful. To have a few hiccups in this progression, Lyndon Johnson was not happy with the kind of treatment he got from the Kennedy brothers, particularly Robert. He was put in charge of certain things that were important, like the Space Commission, but he, he was severely limited. There was even, a, you know, in the new Carroll book, there was a talk about how they limited the use of the plane for Lyndon Johnson. But it's not like Lyndon Johnson turned around and treated his vice president, Hubert Humphrey, all that much better. When Humphrey spoke out about a, a criticizing the Vietnam War, not in public, but in a in a national security meeting, Johnson just froze him out. You know, it, it really is up to the administration, up to the president. There are no rules here. But overall, it is getting better for VPs, and that's why the position's more attractive for so many people. George H.W. Bush is kind of in between. I'm talking about George Bush Sr. here. Kind of an in-between. On one hand, he got along well with Reagan. But to quote Richard Reeves, Reagan treated George H.W. Bush the same way he treated everyone else, a hired hand. He was never upstairs in the residence, never in Camp David. That's something that Barbara Bush would complain about. The two hadn't started on the best terms because they were opponents in the 1980 primary. And Bush had kind of gone for the jugular saying, you know, that the Reagan had, was talking about voodoo economics. So I think there was always kind of a strange relationship, and I'm not sure the Reagan staff, particularly at Meese, trusted him. I'm not sure that George H.W. Bush completely bought the Reagan style, uh, because one of the things that he's going to do, and the Reagan people didn't like this, when he's elected president on his own, is say, make comments like, you know, he's going to wake up early, he was going to read every intelligence department. The intelligence departments weren't going to tell him what to do. He was going to tell them what to do. You know, and then you have comments like kinder, gentler nation that he ran on, which were kind of intimating that he was going to be different and better than Ronald Reagan. It's always tough, uh, presidential pass-offs. What Reagan gave George H.W. Bush to do was not essential work. I mean, important, but not essential. He was head of a committee that reduced regulations in the government. They eliminated hundreds of what they deemed unnecessary regulations with the help of the ONB. You know, important tasks like when Reagan needed to fire his chief of staff, Don Regan, wanted to make it clear that it was coming from the president, but Reagan didn't want to do it himself. He had Bush meet with him and say, we'd like to know when you're leaving. So, that, I think, is this role that you have of this modern vice president. They can be a second president in some situations, but it's going to vary in the administration how much they're given. Now, let's flash forward to Joe Biden, and he's given two big tasks, the winding down of the Iraq war and the stimulus package. Now, to Obama coming in in 2009, these are, these are serious issues. There's a little bit of tension in the beginning. I mean, president Obama doesn't like... Like everyone, uh, some of the off comments that Biden makes, 
Biden made a comment about stimulus. If we get everything right, there's a chance we'll get 30% wrong. I don't know what the Biden thing is. I, I mean, I think it's more than just people pulling out selective quotes. He really does have this propensity to gaffe. I, I suspect it comes out of being a senator from Delaware. It's a very small state. He's Amtrak Joe. He's a guy everybody likes. He's It's coming out of this very local politics type thing. You know, he's making comments on a national stage that are comments that would be better left to, you know, a union hall in in Delaware or the bar in Wilmington or something like that. Obama replies to his stimulus comment, I don't remember what Joe was referring to, not surprisingly. (laughs) That was a good start for the the two. Uh, Biden, but they did set up these weekly lunches, and I believe they're still continuing. It was the same thing that uh, Al Gore had. I don't think that Biden has kind of walk-in-the-door access to the president at all times. I think he's involved in a lot of meetings. One of the things Obama's given him is carte blanche to attend any cabinet meeting he wants. You know, apparently, and I'm relying on some of the double down and other books, you know, but there's a warm moments here where, you know, right after the inauguration, President Obama's mother, 91-year-old, you know, says, Gene Obama says to Barack, you know, you have nothing to worry about. Joey's going to be your friend. <laughs> And a little bit before the 2012 election, there's a moment between the two of them where Obama says to Biden, you know, I'm surprised we're becoming friends. And Joe Biden's like, you're surprised. (laughs) Maybe a little bit of Oscar Madison, Felix Hunger going on there. What I don't think has happened well is I don't think the political team around President Obama has always been delighted with Biden. And I don't believe that they're getting along very well in terms of you know, and what happened in the 2012 election where essentially Biden drove the policy on gay marriage. Uh, I don't think the political team was delighted about that. And there was a lot of aggra- aggravation over that. Joe Biden, has, you know, he says he wants to keep his options for 2016 open, but you just don't see him as a serious figure. It's interesting for the vice presidency that as much as vice presidents have been influential in office, they're not being considered as the next president. And I wonder what that says about the choices that will be made in 2016. You know, do you go with more Biden-Cheney people who are going to help you on the Hill, but not get too involved in uh, in future runs? And I think it's an attractive choice for any of the 2016 nominees. Somebody that's not going to cause much political trouble. Just help you out. Here's a a really interesting question. If FDR had been secretly immortal, how many more terms would it have taken him to lose re-election to the presidency? You know, this is an incredible question. He wasn't that old when he died. He was only 63. He looked poor because of his heart condition. Assuming you didn't have those health issues, I say 1948, if he wanted to run, would have been a victory because he would have been coming off a victory at war. The Democratic Party wanted his name in the ticket. They would have been happy to nominate him. They wanted to help the down ticket races and the Roosevelt name. Even those that weren't New Deal supporters, that Roosevelt name on the ticket helped them. 
Eisenhower and Nixon attempted all through the 50s to break that lock that the Democrats had still on registration of voters. That came all out of the politics of the 1930s. And Nixon still attributing that in part to his loss in 1960. So you got FDR on the ticket. I think you win 1948. Truman won election in 1948, and that was widely believed to be the result of holding together the New Deal coalition and using Roosevelt's name. I mean, it's probable, of course, that FDR would have least achieved Truman's result. Well, FDR lost support in 1940 and in 1944. So he lost electoral votes from, from the 1936 election. That probably says more about how big the victories were in 1932 and 1936. Huge victories. I mean, keeping the support of all but two states, which is he won all but two states in 1936, that would have been difficult in any election. So yeah, President Obama now and Woodrow Wilson, who are examples of presidents who won re-election while losing electoral votes. And FDR is one of those as well. So his loss of some states, particularly the Midwest states, to Wilkie and Dewey, he would have kept losing in the Midwest, but it would not mean the death knell for him. You know, it's, it's not absolute. I suspect by 1952, you have enough fifth term anger building and that World War II victory is four years away. So we can expect that FDR's opponents in the Senate and the House, many Democrats now, would begin to confront the White House more dramatically, blocking anything that he's doing. He has a very difficult election going into 1952, particularly the Republican nominee, Eisenhower, I say, loses. So, 1948, definitely. 1952, mm. 1956, definite absolute loss. Maybe you don't need a 22nd, because eventually voters will decide. I kind of think you do. I'm not sure whether two terms or three is right. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. Henry Ruddle writes, I wonder what you think of my proposal that Romney would have won the 2012 election if he had a sister-soldier moment and told his base to have respect for President Obama and stop calling him a Kenyan Marxist Muslim, since none of those things is remotely true. I think he would have gained a lot of independence and disaffected Democrats than he would have lost extreme Obama haters. Thanks, Henry. Uh, I think that's a really an interesting strategy of what perhaps a Romney could have done. I mean, so I'll just say it might have helped him a bit, but I doubt he would have won in 2012. I do agree that if you do this tactic, and it's been done before, I'll talk about that in a second, you have to pick a part of the party, your own party, that is very, very extreme. So example, if Romney came out and said, I don't like those tea partiers, that's just shooting yourself in the foot. I think you're right to say if he specifically made a statement about birthers and about those who were questioning whether Obama's a Kenyan or a Muslim or something like that, and made it a really large part of the platform, like in the convention speech, 
I'm going to gain a few points. And it's certainly a strawman because those type of people are not really the majority of the Republican Party, although there are some voices. I think it would have been an interesting strategy. In the archive of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, by the way, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com, you go there, the archive's 1888. We have most of what we've recorded. You'll get a URL in 24 hours where you'll be able to download the episodes. I have a cast there called Does the Challenger Matter, which I did around 2012. And I think that really it's about elections are about the incumbent president, even when they're not in the race, uh, even after they leave office. It's about the incumbent president and their administration, even after their, their, their election where they're going to leave office. It's about the incumbent president. In 2012, the U.S. felt Obama was good enough. You know, doesn't mean every one of those votes cast meant they were delighted about President Obama. It means felt he was good enough and they didn't want to make a change. And I think that regardless of what a candidate like Romney does, that isn't going to change the basics of the election, that it's a referendum on the current president. So you have two precedents for this. In 1864, George McClellan, former commander of Union armies, is the Democratic nominee for president. And this is a real coup for them, that they got this guy to take the, the ticket because the Democrats are seen as this peacenik bunch, copperheads, really supporting the Confederacy, secretly supplying them with arms, information, all these allegations, and some do turn out to be true, some are not. Not helping the war effort. They nominate McClellan. You can't attack him on the war anymore because here's the former general. Now, one other thing McClellan does at the conventions, he denounces the platform of the convention and says, if you continue with this platform, I won't accept. We are going to prosecute the war to the fullest. I owe that to the soldiers that have died under my command. That's the statement he makes. In other words, he attacks the peacenik wing of his party when he accepts the nomination. Everybody thinks this is brilliant. Lincoln supporters are scared. But you know what? In the end... That election came down to the Battle of Atlanta. And when you won the Battle of Atlanta and there was enough Union victories to report, it seemed like the war was going the Union's way. Voters acted accordingly. So, yeah, it helped him to build up a strong candidacy and might have put him in a great position if there was an opportunity to beat Lincoln. There was not. 1904, you have a similar situation. The stakes are a little lower. Alton B. Parker, judge of the... Supreme Court of New York is the Democratic Party's nominee against Theodore Roosevelt in his re-election bid. The party, which had just nominated Bryan two times, were going to do it a third time in the next election, was for silver money. They had a platform of silver, inflationary policy. Parker doesn't agree. He does a similar thing. When he accepts the nomination, he announces his own platform that he is a supporter of a gold standard, and if the party doesn't like it, they should not nominate him. So he's accepting the party's nomination contingent to a gold standard policy. Among the people who think this is brilliant is Theodore Roosevelt. And he really did a good thing. And he gets a lot of press for it. But Alton J. Parker barely won any states. He won only in the Democratic... He won only in the South, where at this point Democrats had a lock on 
in any case. He gets killed in the election. So it's an interesting strategy, but I think if you look at history, those elections are about the incumbent president. And sure, you got to build up your candidacy any way you can, but helpful but not decisive is the way to look at it. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Big question on everyone's mind. How can President Obama block deportation for millions of illegal immigrants? The simple way to say it is this. He can absolutely not change the laws of the United States as the president. But he does have this power. Article 2. The executive power of the United States shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. Now, there are debates as to what executive power is at the time of the Constitution. I mean, there were royal power, you know, the kind that a king or parliament had, which was power over everything. And then there was the executive power of, say, like a colonial governor or a state governor in the early states that were established, presiding over the government, acting in emergencies and the like. That language comes out of a sense that Congress, the legislative branch, cannot run the country day to day, and that a republic that was founded that way, and there were some experiments with it in the past, wouldn't work. The president can't make laws on his own. Congress cannot execute its own laws, cannot affect police powers regarding the law. If you look at President Obama's speech, uh, the proposal, he's claiming he's going to focus on law enforcement actions on criminals and not target law enforcement on parents of citizens, on green card holders that have been in the country more than five years, on 290,000 immigrants who were brought in as children, and a million others in various stages. The estimate is that his executive order applies to one half of the immigrants who have violated U.S. immigration laws but are still living in the United States. Here's what the action is and what it's not. It's not a law. Executive orders are instructions to staff who work for the President of the United States. So I think like an easy way to look at an executive order is you know, President Obama could be in the Oval Office and tell Secretary of State Kerry to do something. But since millions of people work for the President, the executive order is a way of doing just that. It's completely reversible by a future president. 
It's completely reversible by President Obama himself. It's subject to legal challenges, of course. It's subject to investigation by the legislative branch. But Congress cannot issue its own executive order. They can't issue instructions to executive branch officials. Their options are limited to legislative solutions or constitutional solutions. So they could pass a new law that's more specific. They can impeach the president. Or they can engage in some kind of in-between steps, a kind of legislative horse trading, if you will, to get the president to change his mind. On the light side of this, you have Mitch McConnell, John Boehner saying, there's no chance of bipartisan reforms now. It's over. We're not going to have any deals. On the heavy side of this, you have some congressmen calling for impeachment, shutting all appropriations down, in effect, shutting down the government, censuring the president, or just changing appropriations for the agencies that would undertake all of the actions in the executive order. This is going to be difficult because the agencies that handle immigration get their funding through fees. Okay, so we read one clause in the Constitution. There's a second one that I'm sure we're going to be hearing a lot about soon. The Constitution also causes the president to take care that the laws of the United States are faithfully executed. The president can't just be a passive agent in the White House. The specific instructions of the Constitution of the United States that he is a person actively enforcing laws. Now here, though, you do have a rich precedent of presidents ignoring laws, not enforcing laws, issuing signing statements after they sign a bill that's contrary to the law that Congress passed. So here's a couple of examples. Abraham Lincoln refuses to release prisoners under writ of habeas corpus. He institutes his own reconstruction policy in the states of Arkansas and Louisiana. That isn't the congressional plan. Thomas Jefferson releases prisoners held under the Alien and Sedition Acts, saying that those acts were unconstitutional, so prisoners can no longer be held. President Kennedy announced that he'd be ignoring a bill that subjected hospital funds in 1963 to separate but equal rules regarding black and white hospitals. George W. Bush said that he would not enforce a congressional ban on torture. He would not enforce whistleblower provisions. And he would not agree a bill that was passed banning the use of U.S. troops in fighting Colombian rebels. This he did through a series of signing statements. So he'd sign the bill into law, but say, here's how I'm going to enforce them. President Obama recently refused to enforce Defense of Marriage Act legislation, saying that the law was going to be proven unconstitutional and he could not. So you have some precedent of presidents doing things like this. Obama supporters are going to point to, to the 1986 Reagan precedent and the actions of George H.W. Bush on immigration. Both of those, though, did happen in the context of congressional law. So Reagan was Reagan signed a bill with Congress in support of it. What you don't have here is a precedent for such a large-scale action of refusing enforcement, affecting millions of people, 
It's one of the top political issues in the United States. There's bitter division about it. Is this an area for a president to use what is usually a minor executive privilege to ignore laws that in the past have been either considered morally unjust or unconstitutional, not applicable to a nation that's at war or things like this? Is it an area where he can use the resource allocation privilege saying, look, I'm the executor of the laws. You've given me this amount of money to enforce them. I'm going to target them on criminals. Can you do that in this issue? And if you do, are you changing laws? George Stephanopoulos asked him in a recently in an interview, is this going to be a precedent for future presidents? The policy is probably attractive to me. I will say I'm going to hold off on a full commentary on, say, the 1986 amnesty, how this one is different, on, on the history of immigration, on the positive and negative effects of immigration, and all of that, and just in this case, just concentrate on the, on the executive power aspects of this discussion. But I do want to do a whole cast on that, and we'll to look at this question. Here's Shannon Coffin, former White House lawyer under George H.W. Bush. Changing the rules of the game rather than just exercising discretion here. It's highly questionable. At some point, doing it in mass, you're doing something very damaging. I certainly wouldn't want to see like 20 actions like this from President Obama and future presidents. I think it's something that has to be used in extraordinarily rare cases, if at all. And... Sympathetic as I am in the issue, I think that uh, if you start seeing many actions like this from a president and then from the future presidents, just sort of, yeah, like, I know what you said in the law, but this is how I, you know, I'm going to use my control of the government at the current time to interpret the law this way and only enforce it. Uh, You start seeing a lot of that, and I don't think we have a happy republic. Would James Garfield have made a good president? Okay. It's interesting about Garfield. I know there's a new book, so there's a lot of speculation about did we miss a great president because of Assassin's Bullet? I would point out that great would be hard to attain. Good president? Maybe. Great hard to attain. There's a lot of talk about a superior capacity, his strength as an orator, his knowledge of the classics, you know, he's a classics professor, his position as a neutral person in the Republican Party between two feuding factions, the stalwarts and the half-breeds. Maybe he would have risen to greatness. But there are no well-remembered presidents between 1876 and 1901. I mean, if you listen to this program, you know we talk about Grover Cleveland and Harrison and all those people. But it's particularly because The United States wasn't under a severe crisis during that time, but it also didn't yet have the status of world power. What we were between 1876 and 1901, you might describe as like we were were one of the brick nations of our time. Everybody knew America was growing. Everybody knew to make money, they had to invest there. Everybody knew that we were going to be a superpower. The British, the Germans, the French, the Spanish were watching our Navy grow with some caution. But that's where we were. We weren't one of the superpowers yet. So it's hard for a president to be great when the equipment isn't there. 
To be great in 1881, when he was elected, he would have had to deal with the riddle of the Sphinx of that time, and that's civil service reform. I mean, the spoil system in which federal jobs, notably the thousands of postal positions, were doled out, pointed by the president, doled out to political supporters at the conclusion of each campaign. American voters were tired of it. And I don't think it would have been possible, though, for James A. Garfield to do anything about it, even, even with some of the great skills he may have had. Because while he had capacity, maybe, he didn't have the votes. Stalwarts, these were people who want a grant to really have a third term. They didn't really want Garfield there. Half-breeds who were wanting reform. Some of them had their own scandals. You know, James A. Blaine was the leader there. and They were at war within the Republican Party. And Roscoe Conkling, senator from New York, boss of New York, was still powerful. President-elect was forced to have a humiliating meeting with him to go over his appointments. He didn't always listen to him, but when he didn't, Conkling resigned in order to get a mandate. His presidency most likely would have been a harassed one. And it would have been difficult for a kind of a neutral or quid president, I really think Garfield was more on the half-breed side anyway, to bring together these two factions. 1881 wasn't a great time for a president, even if he had capacity and no votes. Because the presidency didn't have that much of a platform. He could issue statements in the newspaper, but she didn't have the way to reach the voters in the same way. If he reached out to the other side of the aisle, I don't think Democrats would be very generous with their votes to help James A. Garfield pass civil service reform. Now, they did with Chester Arthur. One of the reasons is, is that Garfield had died and, and civil reform became an issue. Indeed, if you wanted civil service reform, Garfield's party was the wrong party to elect in 1880. The ones that probably could have got it done faster would be the Democrats, Winfield Scott Hancock was running, and they were making it an issue in the election. They were going to pass it. They would have had a mandate to do it. Assuming they got the House and Senate, they would have been able to pass it. Out-of-power Democrats would have wanted to go farther at that time in pushing civil service reform. I mean, a bit more out of opportunity than out of altruism, but nonetheless, they would have had the, been in a better spot to do it. In the end, it was Democrats working with Arthur that passed the Pendleton Act. Hancock would have had his own battles with bosses, but his mandate would have been clearer. With Garfield, I think you would have had, you know, a few small steps from the White House, bills blocked by the Senate, and Garfield would have been ineffective, and you would have gotten to 1884 with nothing achieved. Michael Duchek writes, Bruce, I was just listening to the first Lies My Talking Head Told Me cast, and you mentioned Patrick Henry's opposition to the Constitution at the Virginia Convention. Did he ever warm up to the Constitution, or did he remain opposed to it? Almost everyone in the anti-federalist movement, those who oppose the enactment of the Constitution as written 1788, supported the government once it was ratified and it was the law of the land. Patrick Henry, for instance, violently opposed the Constitution at the Virginia Ratification Convention. But he was a presidential elector in the first election, 1788, that chose 
George Washington. He was an elector. And since we know that Virginia's vote of the Electoral College was unanimous for George Washington, we know he voted for him. He actually became a Federalist, a supporter of Adams and Washington in his twilight years, and not so much enamored uh, with the Jeffersonians and the early Republicans. When Madison and Jefferson had sought to annul the laws involving the Alien Sedition Acts using resolutions of the Virginia and Kentucky legislatures, known today as the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions. In other words, the concept that you could annul a federal law at the state level. Henry spoke out in opposition to it. So not only did he kind of change his mind about the Constitution once it was the law of the land, but he also vigorously defended it in his later years. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. If you like this program, please, please tell someone about it. Post something on a blog. Give us a review on iTunes. Mention us on Twitter. My Twitter is at myhist, at M-Y-H-I-S-T. Look forward to hearing from you. And thanks for listening. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.